Okay, so I'll admit I was kind of excited about this episode because it's my turn to come up with a meaningful number for the intro, you know, something that would catch everyone's attention and draw them into our conversation about the complex and diverse housing challenges in the state of Oregon. Can't wait to hear it. What do you have for us? Um, nothing, actually. Uh, that's kind of the problem. I got distracted because as I was doing my research, right, I came across this really odd thing. Uh, Oregon is home to one of the world's largest single organisms. It's 3.7 square miles, and it's called uh, the humongous fungus. Uh, it also has a Latin name. I just can't pronounce it. So you do have a number. It's 3.7 square miles. Uh, yeah, okay. So I guess that's true. But um, anyway, uh, the humongous fungus is pretty much all underground. So it's it's mostly invisible except where it sprouts these honey mushrooms that you can see on the surface. Um, and they look like they're all independent uh, and disconnected from each other, but they're not. And so I realized that the humongous fungus is a pretty good metaphor for the housing market in Oregon. And this is why I got off track with the number, um, because Oregon's a really diverse state with urban and rural geographies, two sides of a mountain range, and even two time zones. Right? So at times it can seem disconnected, but underneath it all, there's something keeping it together. We just have to dig a little to understand it. Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today we're going to talk about the housing market in Oregon and some of the needs and new developments across the state. And there's a lot going on there. Much of the work relates in one way or another to Oregon's state housing finance agency, Oregon Housing and Community Services. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by Margaret Salazar, the director of OHCS. Margaret, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about the great work going on here in my home state. Well, that's great. So let's let's start with some of that work because um, there's some pretty big news uh, in Oregon from over the summer. The uh, recent $330 million uh, funding package from the legislature uh, directed toward housing needs in the states. So let's talk about what's in it and uh, what it means for the market. Great. Happy to do that. We did have an historic year for housing advocates here in the state of Oregon you know, the legislature and Governor Brown really stepped up and recognized that we have an unprecedented housing crisis here across the state, and they responded with a historic funding package. It's about $330 million. Uh, the majority of those funds are for sticks and bricks, capital dollars, to construct new affordable housing opportunities. The signature program in there is a program called LIFT, which is the Local Innovation and Fast Track Housing Program. Um, this is a program um, that uh, we have administered over the last few years to great success, and it grew this time. Um, so in 2017, we received $80 million for the program, and coming out of the 2019 session, we'll be administering $150 million of LIFT funds, and we typically put those out as gap resources with 4% tax credit. So we're very excited about uh, building more affordable housing with those funds. We also received, for the first time, uh, an infusion of capital to build permanent supportive housing, $50 million of gap funds that will go out um, with uh, rental assistance and supportive service dollars attached. So that is a landmark for us to be able to put out not only the construction dollars for permanent supportive housing, but to also have rental assistance and support services through a partnership with the Oregon Health Authority. Um, in addition to those um, large resources for new construction, we received funds for uh, preservation of existing affordable housing, a $25 million uh, funding uh, package for that, 
as well as uh, $15 million for acquisition of naturally occurring affordable housing, which we can talk a little bit more about, and then um, record funding for homeless services in the state as well uh, for you know everything from street outreach and shelter funding to rapid rehousing and homeless prevention dollars. So uh, we're excited and ready to get to work. Well, so so um, maybe we should start in order with some of that, and and let's talk about the the lift program a little bit more, and and how you see uh, see the hundred fifty million dollars uh, you got there, how how you see that working out. Absolutely. So one of the things that's really exciting about the lift program, so these are state uh, bond funds, general obligation bonds, and um, in statute, lift is geared toward underserved communities, and the legislature really acknowledged that. Uh, two two major underserved communities that are underserved for a variety of reasons. One is rural areas of the state, and the other is communities of color. And of course, we know there have been barriers uh, for communities of color over the years, um, as well as rural communities. And so, um, it's exciting to have the opportunity to deliberately try to reach those uh, both of those demographics. With rural projects, we know how difficult it is for those projects to pencil out when you're trying to build um, new construction, really at any income level, but it's hard to get low-income housing tax credit deals to work. Um, So LIFT goes in as gap funding. We typically put it out with 4% tax credits, and we have also been able to have um, some debt on those properties as well. Um, And so that has worked really beautifully to get Um, some uh, new housing construction in rural parts of the state. Just as an example, we have a number of transactions underway or that are about to open their doors um, in coastal Oregon. On the coast, we have a a severe housing shortage as our tourist industries have really um, ballooned and we need to house our workforce out there. And so Lyft has really been able to be a game changer in some of those communities. So we think that there are some of those um, deals out there in the pipeline. We're excited to, to look at some of those. And then for the communities of color aspect, we've done some really innovative partnerships with um, culturally specific service providers, um, other kinds of outreach to the Latino community, to the African-American community, providing job opportunities and um, contracting opportunities for residents. So that's been a really exciting um, innovation as well with the program. That sounds great. And you mentioned some of the partnerships that you have in, in doing that. I, and the difficulty, say, in rural areas. I'm sure that you have all kinds of different uh, groups that you work with. Do you want to speak to that a little bit and how that differs across uh, the kind of projects you do? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in rural in particular, I'll just, I'll just lean into that a little bit. We, um, we recently published a statewide housing plan that lays out our organization's vision over the next uh, five years. And when we published that plan, we did listening sessions all over the state of Oregon. Um, we have a very diverse state. Uh, we have some large cities. For, you know, Portland is a, is a very large and growing city. Um, but we also have a lot of rural areas that are growing quickly, um, and we have not been able to address the housing shortage in those communities. And so we heard a ton from stakeholders when we went around the, the state, uh, visited 37 communities. We had focus groups. And one of the things that we heard, particularly from small communities, is um, they really have not had the capacity to do that housing planning, to kind of pull together partnerships at the local level, and to be able to access um, public funds. Uh, we know how hard it is to get some of those smaller deals to pencil out, but it's even harder at the conceptual stage to get all the partners around the table. So one of the things that's interesting with Lyft is we've been able to see 
um, some really exciting new partnerships between um, experienced housing developers, both nonprofits and for-profits, partnering with local um, service agencies, so community action agencies, other local nonprofit service providers that have really come together to get um, these projects in the ground and op- opening their doors. So I'd like to understand, you know, one, one point, Margaret, that you brought up uh, is lift with uh, 4% credits. Uh, and and want to understand also uh, the your use of uh, 9% credits in, in the state. Uh, is your focus on, on lift so much with 4% uh, just sort of to make up for a gap that you have on the 9% side? Well, you know, like like most states or, or certainly all states, our 9% program is dramatically oversubscribed. And for years, it was really the only game in town um, for new construction and, and housing development. And so what's exciting about things like Lyft is that it opens the opportunity with new state gap funding on the table to really ramp up our 4% low-income housing tax credit bond production in a way that we hadn't seen before. So the 9% program um, is still oversubscribed. It's a very you know high-demand uh, resource, certainly for small projects, service-enriched developments, um, and for some of these uh, rural uh, developments that are so hard to get to pencil out. But if we can open up a, an avenue for new construction with the 4% program, which is still non-competitive in the state, although it's, we're getting very busy, um, that offers a whole new avenue to, um, to new development partners and new parts of the state we hadn't been able to reach before. Um, we are revamping our QAP uh, currently to be aligned with our agency's strategic plan and, frankly, to align with some of these new state resources. And we're going to be focusing that 9% really intentionally on things like permanent supportive housing, um, service-enriched um, projects, and some of these harder-to-reach corners of the state. Hmm. So that, that last point then kind of ties in with uh, the money for uh, gap financing for the supportive services and stuff? Yes, that's right. So um, as I mentioned, we uh, we had been fortunate enough in prior uh, legislative sessions to receive capital funds to construct um, supportive housing, mental health uh, housing uh, in particular. But one of the things that we've certainly learned is putting out capital um, does not get the job done uh, when it comes to serving uh, folks with multiple health diagnoses, folks that are experiencing chronic homelessness. We really need to have that um, service-enriched approach. And so we've been working very hard as part of our strategic plan um, to try to make sure that we can align not only these new state resources, but our existing programs like the Low Income Housing Tax Credit um, in a way that we can best reach that population. And so one of the exciting opportunities we have is a new influx of dollars for project-based rental assistance for permanent supportive housing um, with a partnership with the Oregon Health Authority. So they act kind of like project-based vouchers with uh, uh, supportive services attached. So think of sort of like a VASH voucher that has supportive services attached, uh, but for a broader slice of the population. So this is all um, a very exciting new foray into really leaning into our goal. We have a a five-year goal of developing 1,000 units of permanent supportive housing. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, and these new resources coupled with our existing programs will will help us get there. 
Yeah, that's that's really fantastic work, and certainly uh, a segment of the market that is truly in need. Um, I know the issue is all across the market in uh, in Oregon, and uh, you, you're involved with NOAA as well, the naturally occurring affordable housing. Maybe you could speak to uh, your involvement there. Sure, absolutely. You know, this really stemmed from a couple of things. One is that uh, we have, like I said, some very quickly growing cities. And one of the things we've seen in places like um, Portland, where we have expanding uh, mass transit, light rail, which has been um, such an incredible resource for, for the metro area, unfortunately, we're really grappling with rapid um, housing uh, cost increases, rental increases, and um, uh, displacement of communities that have lived near transit and lived near some of these um, expanding corridors. And that has led to some real concerns, particularly among communities of color, where we've seen significant displacement from the urban core out into um, suburban communities in the Portland metro area where we don't have as many um, uh, supportive services or other kind of cultural ties for folks. It's been a real challenge. So um, we're, we're looking at that issue very closely. And then I often get asked by legislators, you know, Margaret, what's a really quick way to get more affordable housing in our inventory? It takes, you know, a long time to build, as we know. We know it can uh, cost more than legislators legislators would like to see. What, what's another solution? So I started looking really closely at the um, potential for acquisition and um, talking about how we might be able to address a couple of these issues um, by assembling some funds for an acquisition pool to be able to um, pull down some inventory, maybe in anticipation of that expanding uh, transportation, um, transit systems, um, you know, get into neighborhoods before they get out of reach to be able to preserve the affordability of these properties and move them into an affordability status and and um, protect the existing residents from displacement. So this is our first foray really into this work. We've had a few one-off projects. But um, with the funding we received from the legislature, we'll be able to set up an acquisition fund. Uh, we're looking at different ways to structure that and looking at models around the country uh, for, for inspiration. So is that something where, where you would partner or, or provide funds to you know, other developers to come in and acquire properties? Or uh, is OHCS looking to acquire them? No, thank you for that uh, question. We definitely are looking to work with uh, intermediaries, uh, with experienced developers that uh, really are savvy about working in the private marketplace. Um, we know that um, to, to be able to acquire these properties, uh, we need to have folks be nimble and be responsive to the market. And so we're going to be looking for development partners um, and funding partners that have experience in this space that can help us uh, do this work. Got it. Um, so, so what does the NOAA housing stock look like in the city? Are we talking smaller properties or, or moderate size? I think we have a diversity of that um, a range of housing stock. I think one of the things we've been able to find is that because of the age of some of the properties that we're looking at, um, uh, they are larger bedroom sizes, um, which is wonderful. So if we're able to preserve two- and three-bedroom units, we know how hard it is to get new construction to pencil out for some of those uh, family size unit needs. So if we're able to get um, some of these uh, larger bedroom size properties to uh, to be preserved, that would be great. That does sound great. So speaking of different sizes of properties, I see that uh, 
there was recently uh, legislation that changed it. So where previously single family only may be available, it's uh, it's guaranteed that fourplexes could be built. Um, is that do you see that impacting the market? Yeah, thank you for that. And, and maybe I'll back up and talk a little bit about the overall supply need and need across the state. Um, I know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, research on the overall lack of housing supply across the nation, and Oregon certainly uh, falls within that category as well. And I'll just sort of editorialize for a second and say, you know, um, we were hit like like the rest of the nation with uh, – uh, during the Great Recession with very limited housing production. You know, the wheels just stopped turning at that time. And as soon as we came out of the Great Recession, we not only had a backlog of housing supply that just was not generated at, at all income levels, but then we became a very hot state for in-migration. And around here, sometimes we call it the Portlandia effect. We became a very popular place for people to move. And that's great for economic growth, but it really exacerbated that supply problem so uh, we estimate that from 2000 to 2015, an additional 155,000 homes would have had to be built to keep up with supply. And so we're really far uh, behind where we need to be on the supply front. So there's been a lot of conversation around, we know we have an immediate need to address the very quickly uh, rising housing costs for Oregon low-income residents. Uh, we know we need to build affordable housing, and that's really where we come in as the state housing finance agency. But there's a recognition that we just have a lack of supply across the board, including um, missing middle housing, kind of smaller housing types, as well as market rate housing production. We just have not kept up with that. So as part of that longer-term supply conversation, there was a big move in the legislature um, this session to really talk about um, opening up opportunities for new housing diversity, for loosening some of the regulations that were uh, limiting housing uh, housing growth. And one of the results was House Bill 2001, which is the, the legislation that you mentioned, which really um, opens up the ability for jurisdictions to be able to uh, allow for two, uh, three, and four-unit uh, housing developments in areas that were previously single-family uh, zoned uh, exclusively. And, you know, that was, that was a, there was a lot of conversation about that. I think it's still being rolled out, and folks are still trying to wrap their head around it. But I think um, people do see that as an opportunity to really um, allow for some new diversity and allow for jurisdictions to try some new things in terms of, of housing supply. So, Margaret, is a lot of the attempt at, at uh, new supply, is that being focused on infill development, or is there also an expansion of, uh, of the localities? Well, I will say, uh, if you really want to dive into this, uh, you know, Oregonians love to talk about our um, our very carefully constructed land use system. Um, uh, we have uh, urban growth boundaries here, and it is something that people feel very passionately about, um, uh, one way or another. Um, and so, um, we I think have a, a certainly a, a, a reaction to the urban growth boundaries and a responsibility with our land use system to really look at infill supply, um, and I think that's what House Bill 2001 is really geared toward. Um, you know, again, this is a tension point within our state. A lot of folks have big feelings about um, urban growth boundaries, but I think 2001 is really geared toward that infill approach. And I think there may have been another. Um 
bill that that seeks to really understand the regional housing needs. Is is that accurate? That's right. Yeah, House Bill 2003 is a new approach that really gets to the regional housing needs analysis uh, in the state. Um, and our agency will have a role in that, working with our land conservation and development state agency to develop a methodology for how we can understand the regional housing needs um, and really look at the diversity of the different terrain across um, Oregon. We have some very, very rural places, uh, and we have some very urban places. So how how can a regional housing needs analysis address uh, both of those those needs and um, and we'll be reporting back to the legislature on what that methodology could look like. And we're, we're learning a lot from our colleagues in California who have some experience doing regional housing needs analysis to understand what they've learned over the years with that. Um, and there's definitely a need for us to look at our land use system and think about accountability. Uh, once we have an analysis, how do we make sure that our local governments have the tools and the resources not only to understand that housing need, but to be able to do their part to respond to it. And, um, and, and I think that's the next, the next step. So maybe it would be good to understand a, a little bit, you know, the, the uh, geographic diversity in the state, you know, as we talk about uh, housing needs across the state, um, because Oregon is such a diverse uh, geography. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we, we had um, listening sessions all across the state over the last couple of years as we developed our strategic plan. And um, we, boy, did we hear a lot from our friends in, in rural Oregon. Um, uh, you know, um, as I mentioned, we have um, a very interesting divide in our state between rural and urban. Portland is, of course, the, the largest metro area. It's about 650,000 people. The Portland metro area is, I think, close to 2 million. So it's essentially half of the state's population. Um, we have some very, very small communities. And we heard a lot from our rural uh, friends when we did these listening sessions about how difficult it is to really be able to access um, uh, resources for housing development. One thing that was really interesting to, to hear is I think we have a kind of a bias, those of us that, that reside in urban areas, where we assume that rural communities are either losing population or economically distressed, or we assume that um, it's, it's less expensive to build in rural areas um, or that housing is more affordable. But the data actually reveals a different story. Incomes in rural Oregon are very comparable with those of rural America, but Oregon's home prices are 30% higher and rents are 15% higher than our counterparts in uh, other rural parts of the, the nation. So we actually have less affordable housing in our rural communities. And when I mean less, I mean the housing that exists is less affordable um, than housing here in the Portland metro area. And that's just, it's, it's an interesting thing to get your head around. And then exacerbating that, of course, is that we know how hard it is to, um, uh, to have rents be high enough to cover the cost of construction. So what we've seen is just a lack of housing supply at any income level. Um, in these communities, and, and they're just really hurting. And one example of this, I, um, uh, I was out on the coast uh, in a town called Manzanita, which is an adorable um, coastal village, and there's a sign in the window of the pizza restaurant saying, you know, we no longer provide um, table service because we can't hire any workers because there's nowhere for people to live. So they've actually had to scale back and become a takeout-only 
um, service. And we've heard a lot from um, business leaders all over the state really raising that concern. Um, so that's that's why we, we're so interested in making sure that we can have that balance um, as these areas are um, trying to grow and offer economic opportunity. How can we make sure that the housing stock is available as well? That is a, a really interesting um, perspective. And, you know, often when we think about rural or, or I, I guess, thinking about affordable housing and we think of more urban areas, uh, we think of rental typically. Uh, as people, as we go to, and often rental multifamily, as we go to rural areas, um, uh, the, the larger multifamily certainly are less of an option, and then ownership becomes more of a, a factor. Um, what kind of programs do you have, I guess, or w- what approaches in, in rural areas that affect both rental and, uh, and ownership? Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned, uh, I talked in detail about the LIFT program, which has been really a game changer for rural communities as we've been able to um, get some of these smaller and moderately sized rental um, homes in the ground um, and have their doors open, which has been wonderful. But another interesting thing about the LIFT program is that we actually have authority now to be able to fund home ownership development with those LIFT dollars. And uh, with you know working with partners such as Habitat for Humanity and some community land trusts, we've been able to actually fund the development of for sale affordable housing um, at an affordable level. So um, that, I think, is a really exciting model for us to learn from and to understand, you know, what works and what doesn't work in terms of homeownership development. And then, of course, we have, as our housing finance agency, we also fund uh, below market interest rate uh, mortgage loans as well as um, down payment assistance, which... um, I think is is more in reach in a lot of these communities than it is in some of our more um, high cost urban centers. So I think that's another um, opportunity for us as well. And then the other thing I'll say about um, some of these smaller communities, and this is not exclusively, of course, a rural issue, but um, manufactured housing is another really important factor in Oregon's landscape. Um, we have uh, one of the highest shares of pre nineteen eighty manufactured homes in the country. Um, so, so we have a, a large prevalence of these older homes that need not just repairs, but in many cases just need to be replaced altogether. Um, and uh, we, have, um, we have, I think, about 60,000 low-income Oregonians that are residing in, in these older homes. So uh, we are increasingly looking at that stock and looking at ways that we can make an impact, not only preserving those parks, but looking at the potential lower cost home ownership opportunity that comes with a new uh, manufactured home. So, Margaret, that's a really great uh, sort of perspective on how we got here. And so now I'm curious, what's next? Certainly. So I think what's exciting now is that, you know, the political will is there. The voters have spoken. Uh, we have the will of, of elected officials. And um, folks are, are are looking for us to succeed. I mean, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of optimism. And so I think the challenge we have now is how to deliver on this unprecedented scale of resources as we tackle this unprecedented problem. Um, and I think, you know, here in Oregon, we're a relatively small state, so it's rare that we get to talk about uh, dollar figures in the billions. Um, but when you add up not only the state package that just came through, but the, the metro regional government here in um, Portland, uh, voters passed a $650 million bond in 2018. 
the voters in, in Portland, uh, the city of Portland proper, passed a $250 million affordable housing bond in 2016. When you add that all up together, we're over a billion dollars that are, is going to be coming into the system to help tackle this problem. And so, you know, what I'd like your listeners to know is we need all hands on deck in this small state to help us uh, deliver on our goals and to be able to make an impact. We have some great partners here within our state, um, some incredible housing authorities, some really great uh, lenders and other partners. But we, to deliver at this scale, I need to make sure that we have um, not only new development partners, um, new uh, financial partners, but that we have you know, technical assistance providers, we have researchers, we have homeless service providers, um, kind of all of us working together to, to deliver on this package and to be successful. Uh, and, and so the more we can borrow from other states and, and kind of get that increased um, capacity on the ground here, the better. So you, you mentioned this need for partnerships, and, and uh, you talked about a lot of public investment. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious, are you also seeing uh, a lot of private investment uh, you know, from the business community? Yeah, that's a really, uh, thank you for that question. So I think we still need to cultivate some of that. We, we definitely have seen, um, you know, business leaders step up, some private housing developers have stepped up and done some really interesting things around trying to contribute to the homeless issue here in, in the Portland area. Um, but what we haven't had is really that concerted engagement from the business sector to kind of invest um, together. Um, the one notable um, example is um, in the healthcare system. We did see a number of health systems come together to make over a $20 million investment in permanent supportive housing over the last couple of years to go into affordable housing properties uh, with medical services on site to be able to address our homeless crisis, and that's incredible. So we need to find ways to cultivate more of that, um, to maybe look at the tech sector, which I know has participated in uh, the Bay Area and Seattle, uh, to try to get those folks off the bench, and um, to try to build on some pilots that we have going uh, around workforce housing um, uh, across the state as well to really get employers to participate in that process. So I think that's something that we need to lean into. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious, too, um, when you look ahead um, with all this investment at, at this point in time, you know, how do you measure that success? Do you have interim goals that you're, you're seeking to achieve we, we do. So in our statewide housing plan, which was, again, our five-year plan for our agency, we put some very ambitious goals in that plan, and they assumed that we would be able to get the resources that we needed to get the job done. Um, so we have that for the first uh, two years of the five years now. Um, so with affordable rental housing, our goal is to triple our development pipeline um, to 25,000 units of affordable housing at the end of five years. Um, we have already dwarfed um, our, our historic production. I think we're at double the historic production um, that our agency has had in the past, so we're on our way. But that's one very ambitious goal. I think I mentioned for permanent supportive housing, we have a very ambitious goal of 1,000 units. Um, that will be a stretch for us, but we're excited about that. And then for rural communities, our goal is to dramatically increase the number of units that we are uh, funding in rural parts of the state. Um, so we do have some numeric goals to kind of help mark our path. In the homelessness arena, um, you know, this is this is a little harder because uh, we have seen some tremendous success. We had a 
we had a veterans campaign, Operation Welcome Home, really geared at veteran homelessness in, in 10 communities across the state. And as part of that, we housed more than 500 veterans over a six or eight month period. Um, but at the same time, those um, uh, point in time numbers of just how we're tracking homelessness continue to grow. So we're housing people, but there's also an influx of people coming in. So it's harder to measure there, but I think we do have tools to kind of measure the success of laying the foundation um, for success in the homelessness arena as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a really ambitious uh, set of goals and and fantastic to see already the the, uh, uh, growth and pipeline of new units, which uh, is so hard to do. Uh, So really remarkable. Thanks. Yeah, we're, we're very excited. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I'll, I also want to mention is as we're looking at expanding all of this activity and deploying all these new resources, we really also see it as an opportunity to be very intentional about how we do our work and make sure that we are reaching all of Oregon communities, including those communities that have historically been underserved. So, you know, when we, um, when we did our, again, our listening sessions, we, um, we have focus groups in English and Spanish. We reached out to Oregon's agricultural farm worker community, and we're really trying to build in some very strategic goals around equity and racial justice to make sure that, you know, as we're making this kind of historic investment now in the lasting infrastructure of our state, to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is inclusive, that really does meet the true need. And, you know, when you look across the, the needs uh, for the state, um, communities of color are disproportionately impacted by the housing crisis. People of color are more likely to be experiencing homelessness, are more likely to be severely housing cost burdened, uh, and are far less likely than their white counterparts to be homeowners. So we're trying to be very thoughtful and strategic to make sure that as we deploy these investments, we're, we're really reaching out to those communities and meeting their needs uh, where they're at. Yeah, that is, uh, it's, just hearing you use those words of intentional and strategic and uh, and then, you know, in the context of everything that you've shared today about uh, hitting on all of Oregon's markets, whether it's rural or urban and homeless and many different segments, truly impressive. It's, it's great that you're getting some resources and that you're putting them in place uh, early. And uh, this has been a great discussion for us. So thanks for being on today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.